Well, open your Bibles, please, to Romans, Romans chapter 15, Romans 15, and I will read the first 13 verses. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the final message on the problem that's addressed near the very end of the letter of Romans that was taking place in the church in Rome, the problem of the weak and the strong. And it's mentioned here, you heard those words uh, as uh, as we read through this passage. What is the problem of the weak and the strong that was in uh, Romans? And if you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, I'll give you just a, a, a little review of what it is. It focused around the issues of holidays and foods, holidays and uh, foods, and uh, differences of opinions among Christians in Rome over what was allowed and not allowed in that matter of holidays and uh, food. Holidays and food are a big deal to our lives. Uh, actually, I, I heard one definition of culture, and I didn't write it down, so I can't quite remember it, but it mentioned, I think, uh, a shared language, shared holidays, shared foods, uh, architecture as a... Uh, a definition of culture. That's what that's what a culture is, and so there's very very uh, important uh, differences over um, those uh, issues related to issues of uh, Jews and Gentiles both being saved in the church. And so Jewish people that were saved were used to observing certain holidays and not eating certain foods and doing that because of their love for the Lord because of their devotion to the Lord. And Gentiles who were saved in the church had uh, no concept of no background uh, in that uh, at all. And so this was causing friction in uh, the church at Rome and even threatening disunity, disunity over something as seemingly small and yet important as uh, food and uh, uh, holidays. And so you can just sort of imagine some of the frictions that would take uh, place. And so uh, the strong rightly believed 
that they were able to eat anything. Christ himself declared all foods clean. And they also believed that they were not obligated to observe one day over another, including even the Jewish uh, holidays of uh, the Old Testament in Christ. All those have been fulfilled. And so uh, Christians are not uh, commanded or obligated morally to observe uh, certain holidays. We can choose to you know, celebrate Christmas or uh, something like that, but we're not uh, commanded uh, to. So the strong believed that they could eat anything and believed that they did not have to celebrate one day over another. They were strong in their conscience, strong in what they believed uh, uh, because they believed the truth. The weak are those who uh, believed that they still needed to observe those things, that the Lord expected and uh, commanded them. And if they disobeyed those things, their conscience would be defiled. They would It would become an obstacle in their relationship with the Lord. And so Paul refers to them as the weak. He talks about how the strong and the weak need to uh, not only get along with one another, but help each other, support each other in uh, the body of Christ as well. And so he talks about this issue in uh, in Rome. He gives one responsibility for each group, for the strong and for uh, the weak. For the strong, he says, don't despise the weak, which they'd be inclined uh, to do, look down on Christians who observe things that they don't even need to uh, observe. Don't despise them. And for the weak, he says, don't judge the strong. Don't look at them and say, well, they, they don't practice the same thing as me. And so they're sinning when they uh, do these things. So uh, don't despise for the strong. And to the weak, he says, don't judge uh, others, but rather welcome. Welcome all who are uh, in uh in Christ, just as Christ has uh, welcomed us. So there's a responsibility for each, for the strong and the weak, plus one special responsibility for the strong, which we talked about at the end of chapter 14, and that is don't cause the weak to stumble by the way in which you use your liberty. And so uh, the Christians who are weak in that they believe that they had to obey something that actually the Lord didn't uh, expect them uh, to obey, and also weak in the sense that they're susceptible to peer pressure, especially to people that they look up to, are not to be pressured uh, by seeing their brethren, whom they look up to, uh, um, practicing freedom to eat whatever they want and then be dragged into um, uh, disobeying their their conscience and uh, being defiled uh, in that way and, and perhaps leading in, even into a, a downward spiral in their relationship to the Lord. And so there's another responsibility for the strong that they're to be careful, they're to watch out, to look around, see how uh, the way they exercise their freedom is affecting uh, others and to be careful about that. And, and the strong must even be willing to set aside their freedom, to practice the same restraints as the weak if the situation uh, calls uh, for that. So uh, the strong must be willing uh, to do that. Uh, and as a Christian, that has to be important to you. That has to be important to you, to, to love your brother enough that you don't want to run over his conscience by something that uh, you do. And so that's something that you must uh, keep track of. Well, that's kind of a lot to think through. In fact, it took a whole chapter for Paul to uh, explain all that about the weak and the strong and the different responsibilities towards each other, how that might change in different uh, situations. It's actually a lot to think through. And you might even marvel about how much Paul expected each individual Christian to think through, to think through all that. What am I free to do? What am I not free to do? How is even what I'm free to do affecting someone who feels that they're not free to do that? 
Uh, and so each Christian was to think through all of these principles in different uh, situations. Paul could have made it a whole lot easier, a whole lot simpler, and had a simpler solution and say, you know, you all having a hard time over these issues? Everybody needs to do the same thing. And he could have done that in one or two uh, ways. He could have said, if you're observing certain days and avoiding certain foods, stop. That's wrong anyway. Christ said it's wrong uh, to do that. Everybody stop doing that immediately. And everybody practice the same thing as uh, the strong. He could have solved it more simply. It would have been a much shorter chapter uh, and easier to explain if he had done it that way. Or he could have said, you know, I know some among you are observing certain holidays and avoiding certain foods. And if some among you are doing it, everybody needs to do it. Everybody needs to do it exactly uh, the same way. But uh, Paul doesn't go to either of those uh, solutions. No, he says, you're practicing different things in the church. You need to accept one another as you're practicing those uh, differences. Each must accept the other while doing practicing different things. Plus, the strong must be sensitive towards uh, the weak to, to limit their freedoms in uh, certain situations and be on the watch out uh, in that way. And if the strong are to watch out for the weak in that specific way that Paul uh, explains, how much more in other ways are we also to watch out for each other? And that's what the Bible tells us in the church. We're to consider one another in order to stir up love and uh, good works among uh, each other. And it's not a it's not a paint by number thing. It's not a formula for doing it. It's, it's suited for each person. We're to consider. We're to know one another. We're to consider one another and, and think about how we can uh, help one another to uh, stir up love for the Lord, love for each other, and uh, good works and cause uh, help one another to grow. Well, that's a little review, just to kind of orient you to where we've been, especially going through chapter uh, 14. And I've been emphasizing as well, the problem of the strong and the weak doesn't come at the end of this letter of Romans, just as uh, an appendix, as a, oh, by the way, um, let me address this other little matter in passing that might be causing some uh, stress. And uh, let me just deal with this kind of as a, an extra uh, along with all these other really important things in uh, this uh, wonderful letter of Romans. But rather this problem of the strong and weak comes at the end of Romans as a conclusion. Something that kind of ties in all the threads that he's been uh, saying in uh, Romans or maybe as the occasion why Paul wrote as his aim all along, I'm going to write him an important long letter about the gospel because they're having this problem that's threatening their uh, unity and they need to bring to bear the gospel. And so they need a clear presentation of the gospel. And so he writes of that and then applies it to this matter of uh, the strong and the weak, which is threatening to tear the church apart so that this church might not be sidelined, uh, but rather... Uh, participate in the advance of the gospel in new lands, actually. He wanted them to help him to reach uh, the, the country of uh, Spain, the territory of Spain, uh, a land that had not been reached by the gospel, and he knew he needed the help of this church, and he knew they needed to be united in order to help them. And so it's not just a side issue at the end of Romans, but uh, it's an important um, conclusion to the letter and, and a target that he's aiming at uh, all along. In other words, the problem of the strong and the weak may be why he wrote them so much about uh, the gospel, why he gave them a review and a clear presentation of, of the gospel. If so, 
Then this uh, matter of the strong and the weak, and what Paul had to teach them about it, needed a long runway to get that plane off the ground, needed all of Romans, which explains uh, the gospel of Christ. In other words, again, let me put it a different way, the little rifts, the little fissures, the little cracks in their unity needed to be filled in by the mortar of the gospel. Need to be filled in by people who understand the gospel and are applying it to this uh, situation. In other words, the solution for them in the midst of this uh, difficult situation is not to be solved by rules, not to be solved by laws. It's to be solved by the spirit of the gospel, which is which is uh, to be applied in different ways with different people in different situations. Now, don't get me wrong; there are rules. <laughs> For the Christian life, there's commands that are sort of set in stone for the Christian life. But even those commands are to be obeyed in such a way that breathes the whole atmosphere of the gospel message of our acceptance in Christ as the most undeserving sinners and as uh, offered unto God as a God of grace uh, towards uh, us. And so uh, the spirit of the gospel was to be applied uh, to this uh, problem. The passage that I read first 13 verses of chapter 15 is the last thing said about this uh, problem in the church at Rome. And it takes the form of a grand conclusion. In fact, all the things that it touches on seem almost too grand for this little problem that had to do with food and with um, uh, days. Uh, and it, it is too grand of a conclusion for it if that's seen as just sort of a peripheral thing in uh, uh, the Christian life that, well, it's possible you might run into this situation once in a while, and uh, here's what to do if you run into this uh, situation. No, uh, this was considered something important for you to understand uh, in this situation that would probably help you to apply the gospel in other areas as well. So our passage is a grand conclusion, actually in three ways. It concludes Paul's uh, section on the weak and the strong, which he began in chapter 14, and it ends uh, in our passage. It also includes Paul's section on the Christian life, which he began all the way back in chapter 12. Remember, we talked about um, on, on the basis of the mercies of God presenting your body as a living and a holy sacrifice up uh, to God that is pleasing to him. And this concludes that section as well. And it also, the third way in which it's a, it's like a grand conclusion it actually concludes the whole presentation of the whole gospel, and it connects back to what he's been talking about ever since chapter 1 of this whole uh, letter. So it's a grand conclusion, and it's going to take the form of, uh, of a spiral, so to speak, with two turns, two cycles through. Uh, and each cycle consists of four elements. So we'll go through these. First, he's going to give a summarizing command about this whole issue of the weak and the strong. Then a statement of what Christ has done, and then support from Scripture about what Christ has done, and then he's going to have a prayer, and then he's going to go through all that again another uh, time. So uh, the first time he goes through those uh, elements in this conclusion, it's going to revolve around the character of Christ. And the second time, it's going to revolve around the plan of uh, God. And um, especially in the second part, it's going to lead into very profound territory, which grasps the whole sweep of uh, the gospel as Paul sums up this uh, this problem. So that's where we're going in looking through. We'll work through verse by verse. One more thing, one more thing by way of introduction before we get uh, to it. There's a special focus on hope. There's a special focus on hope in these uh, 13 uh, verses, and I hope you'll see that. I'll draw your attention to it when we when we get there. You need hope for this task of the weak and the strong. 
or of any ways in which Christians are to uh, interact with one another and even tackle problems and difficulties together. You need hope. You need hope for the Christian life of presenting your body to God as an offering acceptable to him based on the mercies of Christ. And that hope comes from the gospel, the whole sweep of the gospel. And so that's a big emphasis of these uh, of these verses. That's what Paul weaves into this grand conclusion is hope. What is hope? What is hope? Well, hope is is a lot like faith. Hope is a lot like faith. Hope is a sister to faith in that it's believing something you don't see. In fact, Paul's actually he actually makes that comparison in another part of this uh, epistle. Chapter 8, verse 24, in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So uh, hope is a lot like faith. They're kind of twin sisters uh, together in that both of them, you can't see it. You're walking by faith, you're walking by hope, you're not walking by sight uh, for both of those things. But hope, the emphasis of hope as as opposed to faith, Hope is specifically believing that the, that the future is going to be better than the present. It's believing that the future is going to be better than the present. And hope needs to power all aspects of the Christian life. That your sin is going to be conquered. The sin that, that, that troubles you, that uh, besets you, is going to be conquered. Hope tells you that. That the trial that you're going through, no matter how dark it is, is going to be overcome. That the rift that threatens to destroy the unity of the church is going to be reconciled in the future or that your endurance is going to be uh, rewarded. And so in these 13 uh, ver- verses, there's other Christian virtues that are mentioned, components of the Christian life like patience, encouragement, joy, peace, we'll run into each of those. But in this passage, they're, they're all sort of subservient to hope. And uh, Paul prays in this passage that you'd have hope, And then he prays that you would abound in it. In other words, that you'd be full of hope and actually have more than you need and some to spare, maybe to give uh, to others uh, as well. And uh, the best part is that hope doesn't come from yourself. It actually comes to comes from Christ. And that's going to be explained in this uh, in this great uh, conclusion. So are you running low on hope this morning? Are you running low on hope? If so, you've you've come to the right place. And uh, you've come to the the right scripture uh, to not only give you hope, but also to cause you to abound in hope and to find more than you need. And that's my prayer for you this morning as well. All right. Well, that's kind of a long introduction. I do want to cover all 13 of these uh, verses. And uh, as I've already said, our grand conclusion takes the form of a cycle with kind of two revolutions that kind of goes uh, deeper and deeper. The first cycle is going to revolve around the character of Christ. And it has four elements. We're going to go through them once and then go through these same uh, again, because Paul kind of puts two conclusions uh, on this. But uh, the first is uh, a summarizing command. And that's in verses one and two. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his uh, edification. And so uh, Paul gives a summarizing command to this whole matter of the weak and uh, the strong. And actually what he summarizes here is that extra responsibility that falls on uh, the strong. 
We who are strong, he says, and here's the summarizing command. He's already said it before, but he's summarizing it here. We ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just uh, please uh, ourselves. He speaks of the weaknesses of those without strength, you know, those who are observing the holidays. They're not eating certain food and they feel like they're displeasing the Lord. They feel like they're sinning against the Lord if they, uh, if they, if they do those things. Uh, and he calls those weaknesses. Um, they're wrong in that. God doesn't actually require that uh, of them. But uh, they can't help feeling that way. It's a weakness. It's a, it's a temporary weakness, hopefully, for them. And yet it's a weakness. And what he says to the strong is not just you need to put up with the weaknesses or tolerate it or endure those weaknesses without despising them uh, when you see them uh, having that weakness. That's all true uh, as well. But what he says to them here is actually more active. We ought to bear the weaknesses of uh, those without strength and not just please ourselves. And so he, what he says is more active than just tolerating and coexisting. That's true too. Uh, but he, he, the word he uses is to support, to help, to carry their, help them with what they're weak in and, and uh, be sensitive to them uh, as well. We're to uh, bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor. And I, I think he says importantly here for his good, and to his edification. In other words, this uh, pleasing your neighbor is not just pleasing the whims of your neighbor or doing what your neighbor prefers because your neighbor would be disappointed with you if you did something uh, different. It's not just to please your neighbor to make their life easier, to make them uh, feel better. There's certainly a place for that too, as far as it goes uh, within some limits. We just call that common decency. This is politeness. Uh, we would do that even to an un- for an unbeliever uh, as far as we could probably. Uh, and unbelievers do that even for each other. Uh, uh, please each other as, as, as much as they can uh, in a different uh, situation. But that's not, that's all good, but that's not specifically what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about pleasing your neighbor when it's for his good and when it's for his um, edification so as not to hurt their faith and, and to hurt it in a specific way by riding roughshod over some uh, something that they have a, a weak uh, conscience as well in a way that's going to pressure them to break their conscience because they look up to you and they see what you're doing um, and they want to do that as well uh, with you. And so in those matters, you're, uh, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his uh, edification, to say, well, I won't eat that when I'm around you because I think it would be bad for you uh, spiritually or to say in your mind, um, I'm not going to do that on this day because uh, I, I think that that will influence you in a way that might be harmful to you. In order to do that, you have to look at um, your obligation towards other believers in such a way that you're not just pleasing yourself. And so that's what he says here for this uh, command. We're to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Well, that's a summarizing command, summarizes this special responsibility of uh, the strong. Uh, it's followed by a statement of what Christ has done, and that's in verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. Even Christ did not please himself. Christ was strong in every way, but he didn't use his power to please himself, although he could have. He could have. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly uh, of, of, of myself. 
He didn't use his power to please himself. And so it says that even Christ did not please himself. And in fact, it's a huge understatement about Christ, that Christ didn't please himself. Because actually what it's speaking of is the the next uh, verse that's quoted will reveal is not Christ abstaining from a favorite food for a time or not Christ uh, postponing his activities that he planned for a different day. Uh, but it's going to talk about Christ embracing the horror and the shame and the weakness and the pain of uh, the cross. And so uh, it says that uh, we, the strong are not to please themselves. That's the command. And here's the uh, here's what what Christ has done for even Christ did not please itself. Then he supports it from scripture. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He quotes from scripture about Christ. It's actually a Psalm of David, Psalm 69. It's a wonderful Psalm in which David is talks about being brought low, very low by a crucifixion like trial and praying to the Lord and the Lord delivering him out of that. And the ultimate embodiment of that is Christ himself. And it says as part of that uh, psalm, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And uh, as it applies to Christ, it actually applies to what he's saying to, about his father. The reproaches, I'm not just thinking of myself, Christ is saying, because the reproaches of those who reproach my father, they fall upon me. I'm not just thinking of how to please uh, myself. And so Christ is uh, an example uh, of that. Verse 4 explains, for whatever was written in earlier times like this, which was written ultimately about Christ, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance in the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so if you're to not please yourself, even not please yourself as a strong uh, person and uh, be willing to yield your rights in certain uh, circumstances, you don't just need a willingness to embrace that responsibility, but you need patience. You need uh, encouragement to stay with it, even when it's uh, uh, difficult. Say it's it's worth it. It's gonna it's gonna turn out well in uh, the end. And so you uh, get that through scriptures, through uh, scriptures. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So here's a psalm. It's written in earlier times about David. It applies to Christ. But it's written for our instruction so that as we obey, we'll have patience to keep going and encouragement of, uh, of uh, the scriptures. So you might read Psalm 69 sometime. You'll be very encouraged if you do. That Christ delivers and God delivers out of the, the darkest trial, out of the worst trial, even out of uh, the crucifixion. And you'll know it even, even more the case because Christ has risen from uh, the dead. So he says... Uh, the scriptures were written in earlier times for our instruction that through patience, through through perseverance, keeping on doing endurance, and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. There it is. I told you we'd be looking for this, that we might have hope. And we need it for this task of uh, the strong and the weak. In fact, we need it for the whole Christian life. We need hope. And where is that hope found? It's found in scripture. It's found in scripture, and that's why we say uh, here, you need to be reading your Bible every day. We have a calendar uh, uh, that helps us to all be on the same page and reading your Bible every day. If you're using that one, fine. If you're using a different one, that's fine uh, too. But you need to be in scripture often because there's, pers- there's patience and encouragement 
that comes from the scripture in order that we might have hope. So you read Psalm 69, and it tells of the psalmist in the, in the darkest trial of all, uh, when everybody's turned against him, uh, crying out to the Lord and the Lord delivering him out of it, exalting him to the highest height uh, out of them. And uh, it gives you uh, hope so that you'll be encouraged to be patient in dealing with the matter of the strong and the weak. You'll be encouraged not to please yourself. You'll be encouraged to uh, follow after Christ uh, because of the scriptures which give you hope. So uh, he um, gives a concluding command, uh, a summarizing command. He follows it with what Christ did. Even Christ did not please himself. He backs it up with scripture, quoting from the psalm, and he gives us the purpose of scriptures that we might have hope. And he rounds it out here with a prayer, verse 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prayer to the God of perseverance and encouragement. And uh, my translation kind of puts that in a different way that I think brings out the right understanding of it. Uh, He's the God of perseverance and of encouragement because he gives perseverance. And he gives encouragement and uh, he gives it so freely that he's the God of those things. He's the God of perseverance and the God of encouragement. So may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So it's a prayer for unity. It's a prayer to persist in even this thorny matter of uh, the weak and uh, the strong with perseverance with encouragement, with hope from the God who gives all those things that you might be of the same mind with one another. When he prays for the same mind in this matter, he's not praying for agreement. He's not praying for uniformity. He's not praying for everybody to eat the same food or to uh, celebrate or not celebrate the same uh, holidays. That's not what he means when he prays for uh, that God would grant you to persevere and be encouraged to be of the same mind. He's talking about not the same opinion of those things, but the same attitude, same attitude. That's what is meant by a mind. And it's the attitude of Christ-like love, even for those who are different. Uh, it's illustrated, not here, but elsewhere a lot of times in scripture, as uh, the attitude that the members of the body have for one another. They show your, the members of your body automatically show the same care for one another, even though they're different from each other. So they don't insist on uh, sameness. Uh, but they show the same attitude, the same care, the same love for one another. And, and uh, that's what Paul prays that God would grant in the, in the church. The God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. He's the standard. He has the same attitude towards each one that he died for. And uh, so he uh, uh, grants us to be of the same mind so that With one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a unity in Christ, and it's worship of God through Christ, the God of our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, with one voice and with uh, one uh, accord. It reminds you of, actually what it says is one mouth. So that with one accord, you may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a result of this unity. It reminds us, of course, of our singing. That's what we do together. With one mouth, with one voice, we glorify God uh, together. And so it's a prayer for worship together, for shared worship 
through the Son, worship uh, in uh, unity. Notice again, it's not a prayer. It's not a prayer. Paul doesn't say, I pray that you'll wait until you have u- unanimous practice on this issue of food uh, and on this issue of uh, days. I, I pray that you'll get that squared around so that everybody's doing the same thing and that after that, you'll worship God with one voice together. No, he says, I pray that he'll give you the same attitude before you are practicing the same thing that you do it now. The prayer is that you'd be able to worship God together now with uh, the same attitude. And so that's uh, his prayer and the way he uh, concludes his prayer. Okay, we've, this is, I've said, the grand conclusion to this uh, section of the problem of the strong and uh, the weak. And uh, the first kind of cycle of this revolves around the character of Christ uh, himself. There's one more revolution of these same uh, elements that's going to summarize this, and it's going to revolve around the plan of uh, God. And so Paul's going to go over these same elements again. There's a lot of review in uh, this, but this is going to lead to, I think, an even grander uh, conclusion of this whole matter and actually of this whole section of Romans. So a summarizing command, and here it is in verse 7, therefore, accept one another, accept one another, welcome one another, um, when he summarized the command before, it was uh, a command just for the strong to bear with the weaknesses of uh, the weak. This is a command for everybody. It's both for the weak and for the strong. No more for one uh, than the other. Welcome one another. Welcome one another, no matter what your opinion is of this uh, matter. Therefore, accept uh, one another. And then uh, a statement of what Christ has done follows it. Just as Christ also has accepted us, to the glory of God. This duty that each Christian has to one another to accept and welcome one another is no more than Christ has also done. And he did it to the glory of God. It's his glory to accept uh, believers and welcome uh, believers. Uh, uh, and, and Christ has done that. He's done it and God is glorified uh, by that. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his uh, mercy. And so Christ has become, it literally says, a deacon, a servant, a minister to two kinds of people in the church. He's become a servant, a deacon uh, to the circumcision. That's Jewish people who tend to come to the Christian life when they're saved with lifelong scruples about food and uh, days and are weak in that sense, who seem to, who uh, tend to come to the Christian life like Peter, who received a vision of what he was to eat uh, in a sheet, and it was all these unclean animals that uh, he was, I'm sure, disgusted by. They had never eaten in, in all of his life, and uh, his response to it was, no, Lord, no, Lord, when the Lord told him to arise and kill and eat. Uh, these uh, things. And Peter was weak in that, uh, weak in accepting what the Lord had. He wanted to please the Lord, but he was weak uh, in that. So Christ has become a deacon to those kind of Christians who tend to be from the circumcision, who tend to be Jewish people, who have uh, scruples and hang-ups about food and about days, and that's been drilled into them since they were born, and they have a hard time letting go of that uh, in Christ. And then he's also become a, ser- a servant, a deacon, to the uncircumcision who tend to be, they're Gentiles, who tend to not struggle with that at all. 
when they're allowed to eat any food in Christ and not celebrate days uh, in Christ, that's uh, easy. That's an easy lesson uh, for them to learn. They, they don't struggle with that at all, but they come with other weaknesses of their own. Different weaknesses, maybe worse weaknesses uh, than those who are uh, 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 Jewish uh, people. And Christ has become a servant to them too. He's become a deacon uh, to them too. And so Christ has become uh, a deacon to both. It's interesting um, that uh, the way um, Christ is described being a, a servant to the Jewish, to the circumcision, and uh, to the Gentiles is described with slightly different results. He's become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And so when a Jewish person is saved, it confirms that God's promises are true. He promised the Jewish nation thousands and thousands of years earlier to be faithful to them. And uh, when he's a servant to the circumcision, it, it what it shows about God is that he keeps his promises. He makes promises long, long ago, and then he finally fulfills them. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And uh, so when a Gentile person is saved and they have no claim at all, to God, not even any history with him, but their ancestors are just, any of their parents are worshiping trees and sticks and uh, stones, and they're saved, uh, amazingly saved. It's, it's a, it glorifies God for his mercy. There's overlap with that. Of course, when a Gentile is saved, it's because God keeps his promises. And when a Jewish person is saved, it, it demonstrates God's mercy. But And so there's overlap uh, in that, but it's just an interesting way of, uh, of uh, putting that. Well, this is what Christ did. He became a deacon, a servant, both to the circumcision and to the uncircumcision, and he accepts all of them. He accepts all of them. And so that's why we're to do it is because of what Christ uh, did. What Christ did is backed up with supporting scriptures, with supporting scriptures. In fact, a whole string of scriptures that Paul gives kind of rapid fire in uh, verse 9. And they're all Old Testament scriptures about Gentiles worshiping together with Jews. All of these uh, scriptures, and we'll go through them quickly. We'll go through them uh, uh, rapidly. They're all about Gentiles worshiping together with Jews, which speaks of God's purpose all along for choosing Israel as his special nation. And this was not a secret. This is not something that was uh, uh, revealed later on in the Old Testament or something like that. This was from the beginning. Israel was chosen that they as a nation might worship the one true God in such a way that the whole world would come together as one and worship him too. And the curse would be uh, repealed and blessing would be restored to this world that God has uh, uh, cursed because of uh, the sin of man. That's the plan of God and it's good news for the whole world that God has chosen uh, Israel. And so the prophets look forward to a time when the knowledge of God would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In other words, everybody would know the Lord on earth and the whole world would be worshiping uh, Christ. That hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. But the church is a sign in advance that that will come about. And especially when Gentiles and Jewish people of different backgrounds are worshiping together in the church and overcoming their differences and welcoming uh, one another. So Christ did that. He welcomed Jews and Gentiles in the church and uh, the all of scriptures speak of uh, this as being God's overarching plan for the whole sweep of the gospel and the whole sweep of history. And so these are passages that relate to the plan of God and especially his plan of Jewish and Gentiles, all the nations, the whole world worshiping him at uh, the end. So uh, Paul quotes from Psalm 18, uh, a Psalm of David, which a wonderful Psalm. 
which speaks of him worshiping with Gentiles. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And so because of David's testimony of God's wonderful deliverance, he gives testimony to the Gentiles. That's what Israel was supposed to do all along. And he speaks of it there in Psalm 18. I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32. It's a great chapter in uh, the Pentateuch because it's the song of Moses that traces out Israel's history from beginning to end. In fact, uh, some of it is, has not even happened. It's yet future now. And it's the story of sin, exile of the worst kind, and restoration of uh, the nation. It ends with Israel praising God and the Gentiles, the nations, praising with his people at the end of this story. And so uh, it's just a quick quote, but a, an important one. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's the end of, of the song of Moses. And then uh, a quote from Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. It's a it's a very short psalm, and it's, it's about Gentiles praising uh, the Lord. And then the final quote from the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah is the prince of prophets, uh, a standout among the prophets, and he, his uh, verse here has a special place of prominence in the verses that he quotes about Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. In him shall the Gentiles uh, uh, hope. Uh, he speak, This uh, speaks of a king arising and then being the hope of uh, the Gentiles, arising to rule over the Gentiles. The word arise... As you're reading Isaiah, you know, it could just speak of a king rising up to power. Um, but it's the same word as resurrection. I'm sure Paul means it in the sense of not just arising, a king rising, but one arising from the dead to rule over uh, the Gentiles. Paul's gospel has always been about a king and a kingdom. In fact, the first seven verses of uh, Romans, uh, Paul speaks about his gospel and he speaks about one uh, who is a, a, a son of David, a born a descendant of David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so his gospel that he unpacks is a gospel about uh, a king rising up, a king destined to rule over all of uh, the earth and, uh, uh, and rule not only over Jews, but also over Gentiles. Romans... Speaks a, it speaks a lot about individual salvation, the way we're justified by faith, but it never forgets that the gospel is about a king and a kingdom. And so when you get to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 21, it talks about a kingdom and a reign that's characterized by grace. That's why the reign of this king is good news. It talks about where sin reigned in death over all the world. Grace is going to reign through life and reign more than uh, sin reigned, and that's the reign of this uh, king. And so in him shall the Gentiles hope. He's the hope of the nations. He's the hope of, of the world, uh, is uh, Christ himself. And he welcomes Jews and Gentiles into the church. That's, that's his purpose. That's uh, the purpose of his kingdom is to reign over all the nations of the world. He's the hope of the Gentiles. There's our word again, hope. It's mentioned three times again. At uh, the end of it, Christ is the hope of the world. He's the hope that the world in the future is going to be better than it is in the present. And it's all bound up in uh, the, the, the person of, uh, of Christ. 
This is the hope that you need in order to obey the command to welcome one another in the church, even despite our differences, in order to live the whole Christian life. And you get this hope from the gospel, from knowing that the hope of the nations is your hope now. And so the prayer that he does at the end, we've come to the final verse and the final component uh, of this is a prayer that um, asks for this hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy uh, Spirit. Um, I, I can see on the clock I'm out of time, but let, let me, uh, I think I can do this uh, quickly and, and come to the end of this um, uh, verse. Uh, there's a joy and a peace that comes from hope. And so the God of hope, the God who gives hope is what it means. Uh, the, the, the request is for in prayers for him to fill us with all joy, every joy and peace in believing, in believing. Believing there is the same word for faith, the same word for uh, trusting. And so the God of hope fills us with joy and peace of that hope in believing. And I want to make an emphasis of that because Paul makes an emphasis of that in believing. There's a special place to faith in the gospel. And if you uh, trace Paul's argument throughout uh, Romans, you find that. You find that Paul uh, emphasizes that. And so when someone is saved, they believe in Christ and their faith runs together with a whole crowd of Christian virtues like love and joy and peace and a commitment to obey God and a changed life and good works start flowing out of them uh, as well. But Paul labored to say when he was explaining the gospel that justification that is being declared righteous in the sight of God is by faith alone is by faith alone. It's only by trusting in him. And so he talked about in chapter 3, verse 22, the uh, righteousness of God through faith, through faith, that one thing that he singles out. Uh, he talks about the, the blessed man whose faith is credited as righteousness before God. That's Romans chapter 4 and uh, uh, verse uh, 5. In fact, that's what you do to become a Christian in the first place. And if you're not a Christian today, this is how you become a Christian is by trusting, abandoning all trust in yourself and simply trusting in uh, Christ himself and, and being justified by faith, by faith alone, by simply by that uh, faith, uh, trusting in Christ. And that's the way we're declared. It's the only way to be declared righteous. Otherwise, you stand before God as a sinner and experience in your own body all the punishment uh, that comes uh, from that. So there's a special place to faith. It's seen in justification by faith. It's seen kind of at the beginning of the Christian life. And that special place of faith isn't forgotten when it comes to the Christian life and the challenges of the Christian life. And so his prayer for these Christians is, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing in your faith. In other words, as you continue to believe, as you continue to trust in Christ, may God fill you with joy and faith in that believing. He could have said, uh, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in obeying or in persevering or in loving or in any any other of, of things. But he again singles out faith in believing. Why? Why does he single out faith? May he give you fill you with hope. And here's here's the way he's going to do it in your believing. Uh, that's going to be the um, the vehicle for him uh, uh, filling you with uh, hope and the peace and the joy that comes from it's it's in your believing. Why does he single out faith? For the same reason that he singled it out for justification by faith is to indicate that it doesn't come from you, this hope, but it comes from Christ. It comes from the person 
of uh, Christ uh, himself. And so that in that way, you'll, you're filled with faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how he finishes his prayer. May, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by your own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. His prayer before was that you'd have faith or that you'd have faith from uh, scriptures. His prayer here is not just that you'd have faith, have hope, I should say, but that you'd abound in it, that you'd have more uh, than you need. And uh, that's his prayer. So are you short on hope this morning? Are you short on hope this morning? If you are, why? Why are you short on hope? God has plenty for you to cause you to abound. And the way to get it is by faith, by trusting in him. And so no matter what your struggle, no matter what your trial, no matter what uh, your difficulty, you need to trust in uh, Christ. You need to be reminded of Christ and find in Christ all the perseverance and encouragement for the task at hand, which is to patiently pursue unity. In the church, that's what he's speaking of here as he prays this for the Roman Christians that they'd be filled uh, with hope uh, in order that you might not give up in that task of seeking uh, unity and working towards unity in order that if at first you don't succeed, that you would try again, even in this uh, matter of the strong and the weak, that you'd welcome those all who are in Christ, knowing that Christ did it. He didn't serve, uh, he didn't please himself. He became a servant to all, and he did it especially when he went to the cross uh, for our sake. And we know that uh, according to uh, Scripture. So that's what Scripture tells us uh, about Christ. It's what it tells us about uh, his character and uh, about his coming kingdom as well. And it ought to fill you with an abundant hope, a hope uh, that what is yet to come in the future is better uh, than what we are, are going through now. So let's, uh, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that you are the God of hope. We thank you that the gospel we know of through scripture fills us with hope, and not only fills us with hope, but causes us to abound in hope because it tells us not of ourselves, not of a, some great potential in ourselves, but it tells us of Christ, it tells us of uh, a king, who comes uh, to make us new, who comes to forgive our sins, and who will one day rule uh, over the whole world. And so we pray that we might uh, remember Christ in order to trust in him, in order that you might fill us with hope. And then, Father, we pray that uh, armed with this hope, full of this hope, we might uh, tackle the responsibilities of the Christian life, including the responsibility uh, of the weak, and the strong to welcome one another despite differences, to be careful of one another, to not seek our own uh, things, and to persist uh, in this, to not give up, but to seek uh, the unity of the church in order that we might be used by you for the spread of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.